Section 7 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3, by Julian Hawthorne Editor. Section Number 7. The Incantation, Part 2. By Bulwer Lytton. 8. One hour passed away. The faggots under the cauldron burned clear in the sullen, sultry air. The materials within began to seethe, and their color, at first dull and turbid, changed into a pale rose hue. From time to time the veiled woman replenished the fire, after she had done so, reseating herself close by the pyre with her head bowed over her knees, and her face hid under her veil. The lights in the lamps and along the ring and the triangles now began to pale. I resupplied their nutriment from the crystal vessel. As yet nothing strange startled my eye or my ear beyond the rim of the circle, nothing audible save at a distance the musical wheel-like click of the locusts, and farther still, in the forest, the howl of the wild dogs that never bark, nothing visible but the trees and the mountain range girding the plains silvered by the moon, and the arch of the cavern, the flush of wild blooms on its sides, and the gleam of dry bones on its floor where the moonlight shot into the gloom. The second hour passed like the first. I had taken my stand by the side of Margrave, watching with him the process at work in the cauldron, when I felt the ground slightly vibrate beneath my feet, and looking up, it seemed as if all the plains beyond the circle were heaving like the swell of the sea, and as if in the air itself there was a perceptible tremor. I placed my hand on Margrave's shoulder and whispered, To me, earth and air seem to vibrate. Do they seem to vibrate to you? I know not. I care not, he answered impetuously. The essence is bursting the shell that confined it. Here are my air and my earth. Trouble me not. Look to the circle. Feed the lamps if they fail. I passed by the veiled woman as I walked toward a place in the ring in which the flame was waning dim, and I whispered to her the same question which I had whispered to Margrave. She looked slowly around and answered, So is it before the invisible make themselves visible. Did I not bid him forbear? Her head again drooped on her breast, and her watch was again fixed on the fire. I advanced to the circle and stooped to replenish the light where it waned. As I did so, on my arm, which stretched somewhat beyond the line of the ring, I felt a shock like that of electricity. The arm fell to my side, numbed and nerveless, and from my hand dropped, but within the ring, the vessel that contained the fluid. Recovering my surprise, or my stun, hastily with the other hand, I caught up the vessel, but some of the scanty liquid was already spilled on the sward, and I saw with a thrill of dismay, that contrasted indeed the tranquil indifference with which I had first undertaken my charge, how small a supply was now left. I went back to Margrave and told him of the shock, and of its consequence in the waste of the liquid. "'Beware,' said he, 
that not a motion of the arm, not an inch of the foot, pass the verge of the ring. And if the fluid be thus unhappily stinted, reserve all that is left for the protecting circle and the twelve outer lamps. See how the grand work advances, how the hues in the cauldron are glowing, blood-red, through the film on the surface. And now four hours of the six were gone. My arm had gradually recovered its strength. Neither the ring nor the lamps had again required replenishing. Perhaps their light was exhausted less quickly, as it was no longer to be exposed to the rays of the intense Australian moon. Clouds had gathered over the sky, and though the moon gleamed at times in the gaps that they left in blue air, her beam was more hazy and dulled. The locusts no longer were heard in the grass, nor the howl of the dogs in the forest. Out of the circle the stillness was profound. And about this time I saw distinctly in the distance a vast eye. It drew nearer and nearer, seeming to move from the ground at the height of some lofty giant. Its gaze riveted mine. My blood curdled in the blaze from its angry ball. And now, as it advanced larger and larger, other eyes, as if of giants in its train, grew out from the space in its rear. Numbers on numbers, like the spearheads of some eastern army, seen afar by pale warders of battlements doomed to the dust. My voice, long refused an utterance to my awe, at length it burst forth shrill and loud, Look! Look! Those terrible eyes! Legions on legions! And hark! That tramp of numberless feet! They are not seen, but the hollows of earth echo the sound of their march! Margrave, more than ever intent on the cauldron in which, from time to time, he kept dropping powders or essences drawn forth from his coffer, looked up defyingly, fiercely. "'Ye come,' he said in a low mutter, his once mighty voice sounding hollow and laboring, but fearless and firm. "'Ye come, not to conquer vain rebels, ye whose dark chief I struck down at my feet, in the tomb where my spell had raised up the ghost of your first human master, the Chaldee. Earth and air have their armies still faithful to me, and still I remember the war-song that summons them up to confront you. Aisha, Aisha, recall the wild troth that we pledged among the roses. Recall the dread bond by which we united our sway over hosts that yet own thee as queen. Though my scepter is broken, my diademed reft from my brows. The veiled woman rose at this adjuration. Her veil now was withdrawn, and the blaze of the fire between Margrave and herself flushed, as with the rosy bloom of youth, the grand beauty of her softened face. It was seen, detached as it were, from her dark-mantled form, seen through the mist of the vapours which rose from the cauldron, framing it round like the clouds that are yieldingly pierced by the light of the evening star. Through the haze of the vapour came her voice, more musical, more plaintive than I had heard it before, but far softer, more tender. Still in her foreign tongue, the words unknown to me, and yet their sense, perhaps, made intelligible by the love which has one common language and one common look to all who have loved, the love unmistakably heard in the loving tone, unmistakably seen in the loving face. 
a moment or so more, and she had come round from the opposite side of the fire-pile, and bending over Margrave's upturned brow, kissed it quietly, solemnly. And then her countenance grew fierce, her crest rose erect, it was the lioness protecting her young. She stretched forth her arm from the black mantle, athwart the pale front that now again bent over the cauldron, stretched it toward the haunted and hollow-sounding space beyond, in the gesture of one whose right hand has the sway of the scepter. And then her voice stole on the air in the music of a chant, not loud, yet far-reaching. So thrilling, so sweet, and yet so solemn, that I could at once comprehend how legend united of old the spell of enchantment with the power of song. All that I recalled of the effects which, in the former time, Margrave's strange chants had produced on the ear that they ravished, and the thoughts they confused, was but as the wild bird's imitative carol, compared to the depth and the art and the soul of the singer, whose voice seemed endowed with a charm to enthrall all the tribes of creation, though the language it used for that charm might to them, as to me, be unknown. As the song ceased, I heard from behind sounds like those I had heard in the spaces before me, the tramp of invisible feet, the whir of invisible wings, as if armies were marching to aid against armies in march to destroy. "'Look not in front nor around,' said Aisha. "'Look like him on the cauldron below. The circle and the lamps are yet bright. I will tell you when the light again fails.' I dropped my eyes on the cauldron. "'See,' whispered Margrave, "'the sparkles at last begin to arise, "'and the rose hues to deepen, "'signs that we are near the last process.'" 9. The fifth hour had passed away when Aisha said to me, "'Lo, the circle is fading, the lamps grow dim.'" Look now without fear on the space beyond. The eyes that appalled thee are again lost in air, as lightnings that fleet back into cloud. I looked up, and the spectres had vanished. The sky was tinged with sulphurous hues, the red and the black intermixed. I replenished the lamps and the ring in front, thriftfully, heedfully. But when I came to the sixth lamp, not a drop in the vessel that fed them was left. In a vague dismay, I now looked round the half of the wide circle in the rear of the two bended figures intent on the cauldron. All along that disk the light was already broken, here and there flickering up, here and there dying down. The six lamps in that half of the circle still twinkled, but faintly, as stars shrinking fast from the dawn of day. But it was not the fading shine in that half of the magical ring which daunted my eye, and quickened with terror the pulse of my heart. The bushland beyond was on fire. From the background of the forest rose the flame and the smoke, the smoke there still half smothering the flame. But along the width of the grasses and herbage, between the verge of the forest and the bed of the water creek, just below the raised platform from which I beheld the dread conflagration, the fire was advancing, wave upon wave, clear and red against the columns of rock behind, as the rush of a flood through the mists of some alp crowned with lightnings. 
Roused from my stun at the first sight of a danger not foreseen by the mind, I had steeled against far rarer portents of nature. I cared no more for the lamps in the circle. Hurrying back to Aisha, I exclaimed, "'The phantoms have gone from the spaces in front, but what incantation or spell can arrest the red march of the foe speeding on in the rear?' While we gazed on the cauldron of life behind us, unheeded, behold, the destroyer! Aisha looked and made no reply, but as by involuntary instinct, bowed her majestic head, then rearing it erect, placed herself yet more immediately before the wasted form of the young magician. He, still bending over the cauldron and hearing me not in the absorption and hope of his watch, placed herself before him, as the bird whose first care is her fledgling. As we too there stood, fronting the deluge of fire, we heard Margrave behind us murmuring low, See the bubbles of light, how they sparkle and dance. I shall live, I shall live. And his words scarcely died in our ears, before, crash upon crash, came the fall of the age-long trees in the forest, and nearer, all near us, through the blazing grasses, the hiss of the serpents, the scream of the birds, and the bellow and tramp of the herds, plunging wild through the billowy red of their pastures. Aisha now wound her arms around Margrave, and wrenched him, reluctant and struggling, from his watch over the seething cauldron. In rebuke of his angry exclamations, she pointed to the march of the fire, spoke in sorrowful tones a few words in her own language, and then, appealing to me in English, said, I tell him that here the spirits who oppose us have summoned the foe that is deaf to my voice, and— And, exclaimed Margrave, no longer with gasp and effort, but with the swell of a voice which drowned all the discords of terror and of agony sent forth from the phlegathon burning below, and this witch whom I trusted is a vile slave and impostor, more desiring my death than my life. She thinks that in life I should scorn and forsake her, that in death I should die in her arms. Sorceress, avant! Art thou useless and powerless now, when I need thee most? Go! Let the world be one funeral pyre. What to me is the world? My world is my life. Thou knowest that my last hope is here, that all the strength left me this night will die down like the lamps in the circle, unless the elixir restore it. Bold friend, spurn that sorceress away, hours yet ere those flames can assail us, a few minutes more, and life to your Lillian and me. Thus having said, Margrave turned from us, and cast into the cauldron the last essence yet left in his empty coffer. Aisha silently drew her black veil over her face, and turned, with the being she loved, from the terror he scorned, to share in the hope that he cherished. Thus left alone, with my reason disenthralled, disenchanted, I surveyed more calmly the extent of the actual peril with which we were threatened, and the peril seemed less so surveyed. It is true, all the bushland behind— almost up to the bed of the creek, was on fire. But the grasses, through which the flame spread so rapidly, ceased at the opposite marge of the creek. Watery pools were still, at intervals, left in the bed of the creek, shining, tremulous, 
like waves of fire in the glare reflected from the burning land. And even where the water failed, the stony course of the exhausted rivulet was a barrier against the march of the conflagration. Thus, unless the wind, now still, should rise, and waft some sparks to the parched combustible herbage immediately around us, we were saved from the fire, and our work might yet be achieved. I whispered to Aisha the conclusion to which I came. "'Thinkest thou,' she answered without raising her mournful head, "'that the agencies of nature are the movements of chance? "'The spirits I invoke to his aid are leagued with the hosts that assail. "'A mightier than I am has doomed him.' Scarcely had she uttered these words before Margrave exclaimed, "'Behold how the rose of the alchemist's dream "'enlarges its blooms from the folds of its petals. "'I shall live! I shall live!' "'I looked, and the liquid which glowed in the cauldron "'had now taken a splendor that mocked all comparisons "'borrowed from the luster of gems. "'In its prevalent color it had indeed "'the dazzle and flash of the ruby. "'But out from the mass of the molten red broke coruscations of all prismal hues, shooting, shifting, in a play that made the wavelets themselves seem living things, sensible of their joy. No longer was there scum or film upon the surface, only ever and anon a light, rosy vapor, floating up, and quick lost in the haggard, heavy, sulphurous air, hot with the conflagration rushing toward us from behind. And these coruscations formed, on the surface of the molten ruby, literally the shape of a rose, its leaves made distinct in their outlines by sparks of emerald and diamond and sapphire. Even while gazing on this animated liquid luster, a buoyant delight seemed infused into my senses. All terrors conceived before were annulled. The phantoms, whose armies had filled the wide spaces in front, were forgotten. The crash of the forest behind was unheard. In the reflection of that glory, Margrave's wan cheek seemed already restored to the radiance it wore when I saw it first in the framework of blooms. As I gazed, thus enchanted, a cold hand touched my own. "'Hush!' whispered Aisha from the black veil, against which the rays of the cauldron fell blunt and absorbed into dark. "'Behind us the light of the circle is extinct. But there—' We are guarded from all save the brutal and soulless destroyers. But before, but before, see, two of the lamps have died out. See the blank of the gap in the ring. Guard that breach. There the demons will enter. Not a drop is there left in this vessel by which to replenish the lamps on the ring. Advance, then. Thou hast still the light of the soul, and the demons may recoil before a soul that is dauntless and guiltless. If not, three are lost. As it is, one is doomed. Thus adjured, silently, involuntarily, I passed from the veiled woman's side, over the seer lines on the turf which had been traced by the triangles of light long since extinguished, and toward the verge of the circle. As I advanced, overhead rushed a dark cloud of wings, birds dislodged from the forest on fire, and screaming in dissonant terror as they flew toward the farthermost mountains. Close by my feet hissed and glided the snakes, 
driven forth from their blazing coverts, and glancing through the ring, unscared by its waning lamps, all undulating by me, bright-eyed and hissy, all made innocuous by fear. Even the terrible death-adder, which I trampled on as I halted at the verge of the circle, did not turn to bite, but crept harmless away. I halted at the gap between the two dead lamps, and bowed my head to look again into the crystal vessel. Were there, indeed, no lingering drops yet left, if but to recruit the lamps for some priceless minutes more? As I thus stood, right into the gap between the two dead lamps strode a gigantic foot. All the rest of the form was unseen, only, as volume after volume of smoke poured on from the burning land behind, it seemed as if one great column of vapor, eddying round, settled itself aloft from the circle, and that out from that column strode the giant foot. And as strode the foot, so with it came, like the sound of its tread, a roll of muttered thunder. I recoiled with a cry that rang loud through the lurid air. "'Courage!' said the voice of Aisha. "'Trembling soul, yield not an inch to the demon!' At the charm, the wonderful charm in the tone of the veiled woman's voice, my will seemed to take a force more sublime than its own. I folded my arms on my breast, and stood as if rooted to the spot, confronting the column of smoke and the stride of the giant foot. And the foot halted, mute. Again in the momentary hush of that suspense, I heard a voice. It was Margrave's. The last hour expires. The work is accomplished. Come, come, aid me to take the cauldron from the fire, and quick, or a drop may be wasted in vapor, the elixir of life from the cauldron. At that cry I receded, and the foot advanced, and at that moment, suddenly unawares from behind, I was stricken down. Over me, as I lay, swept a whirlwind of trampling hoofs and glancing horns. The herds, in their flight from the burning pastures, had rushed over the bed of the watercourse, scaled the slopes of the banks. Snorting and bellowing, they plunged their blind way to the mountains. One cry alone, more wild than their own savage blare, pierced the reek through which the brute hurricane swept. At that cry of wrath and despair, I struggled to rise again dashed to earth by the hoofs and the horns. But was it the dreamlike deceit of my reeling senses, or did I see that giant foot stride past through the close serried ranks of the maddening herds? Did I hear, distinct through all the huge uproar of animal terror, the roll of low thunder which followed the stride of that foot? 10. When my sense had recovered its shock, and my eyes looked dizzily round, the charge of the beasts had swept by, and of all the wild tribes which had invaded the magical circle, the only lingerer was the brown death-adder, coiled close by the spot where my head had rested. Beside the extinguished lamps which the hooves had confusedly scattered, the fire, arrested by the watercourse, had consumed the grasses that fed it, and there the plains stretched black and desert as the phlegrian field of the poet's hell but the fire still raged in the forest beyond, white flames soaring up from the trunks of the tallest trees, and forming, through the sullen dark of the smoke reek, innumerable pillars of fire, like the halls in the city of fiends. 
Gathering myself up, I turned my eyes from the terrible pomp of the lurid forest, and looked fearfully down on the hoof-trampled sward for my two companions. I saw the dark image of Aisha, still seated, still bending as I had seen it last. I saw a pale hand, feebly grasping the rim of the magical cauldron, which lay, hurled down from its tripod by the rush of the beasts, yards away from the dim, fading embers of the scattered woodpire. I saw the faint writhings of a frail, wasted frame over which the veiled woman was bending. I saw, as I moved with bruised limbs to the place, close by the lips of the dying magician, the flash of the ruby-like essence spilled on the sword, and, meteor-like, sparkling up from the torn tufts of herbage. I now reached Margrave's side, bending over him as the veiled woman bent, and as I sought gently to raise him, he turned his face, fiercely faltering out. "'Touch me not! Rob me not! You share with me! Never! Never! These glorious drops are all mine! Die all else! I will live! I will live!' Writhing himself from my pitying arms, he plunged his face amidst the beautiful, playful flame of the essence, as if to lap the elixir with lips scorched away from its intolerable burning. Suddenly, with a low shriek, he fell back, his face upturned to mine, and on that face unmistakably reigned death. Then Aisha tenderly, silently, drew the young head to her lap, and it vanished from my sight behind her black veil. I knelt beside her, murmuring some trite words of comfort, but she heeded me not, rocking herself to and fro as the mother who cradles a child to sleep. Soon the fast-flickering sparkles of the lost elixir died out on the grass, and with their last sportive diamond-like tremble of light, up in all the suddenness of Australian day rose the sun, lifting himself royally above the mountaintops, and fronting the meaner blaze of the forest as a young king fronts his rebels. And as there, where the bushfires had ravaged, all was a desert. So there, where their fury had not spread, all was a garden. Afar, at the foot of the mountains, the fugitive herds were grazing. The cranes, flocking back to the pools, renewed the strange grace of their gambols. And the great kingfisher, whose laugh, half in mirth, half in mockery, leads the choir that welcome the morn, which in Europe is night, alighted bold on the roof of the cavern, whose floors were still white with the bones of races extinct before, so helpless through instincts, so royal through soul, rose man. But there, on the ground where the dazzling elixir had wasted its virtues, there the herbage already had a freshness of verdure, which amid the duller sward round it was like an oasis of green in a desert, and there wild flowers, whose chill hues the eye, would have scarcely distinguished the day before, now glittered forth in blooms of unfamiliar beauty. Toward that spot were attracted myriads of happy insects, whose hum of intense joy was musically loud. But the form of the life-seeking sorcerer lay rigid and stark, blind to the bloom of the wild flowers, deaf to the glee of the insects, one hand still resting heavily on the rim of the emptied cauldron, and the face still hid behind the black veil.
What, the wondrous elixir, sought with such hope and well-nigh achieved through such dread, fleeting back to the earth from which its material was drawn, to give bloom indeed, but to herbs, joy indeed, but to insects. And now, in the flash of the sun, slowly wound up the slopes that led to the circle, the same barbaric procession which had sunk into the valley under the ray of the moon. The armed men came first, stalwart and tall, their vests brave with crimson and golden lace, their weapons gaily gleaming with holiday silver. After them, the black litter. As they came to the place, Aisha, not raising her head, spoke to them in her own eastern tongue. A wail was her answer. The armed men bounded forward, and the bearers left the litter. All gathered round the dead form with the face concealed under the black veil. All knelt, and all wept. Far in the distance, at the foot of the blue mountains, a crowd of the savage natives had risen up, as if from the earth. They stood, motionless, leaning on their clubs and spears, and looking toward the spot on which we were. Strangely, thus brought into the landscape, as if they, too, the wild dwellers on the verge which humanity guards from the brute, were among the mourners for the mysterious child of mysterious nature. And still in the herbage hummed the small insects, and still from the cavern laughed the great kingfisher. I said to Aisha, Farewell, your love mourns the dead, mine calls me to the living. You are now with your own people, they may console you. Say if I can assist. There is no consolation for me. What mourner can be consoled if the dead die forever? Nothing for him is left but a grave. That grave shall be in the land where the song of Aisha first lulled him to sleep. Thou assist me, thou the wise man of Europe, from me ask assistance. What road wilt thou take to thy home? There is but one road known to me through the maze of the solitude, that which we took to this upland. On that road death lurks and awaits thee, blind dupe, couldst thou think that if the grand secret of life had been won, he whose head rests on my lap would have yielded thee one petty drop of the essence which had filched from his store of life but a moment. Me, who so loved and so cherished him, me he would have doomed to the pitiless cord of my servant, the strangler, if my death could have lengthened a hairbreadth the span of his being. But what matters to me his crime or his madness? I loved him. I loved him. She bowed her veiled head lower and lower. Perhaps under the veil her lips kissed the lips of the dead. Then she said whisperingly, Duma the strangler, whose word never failed to his master, whose prey never slipped from his snare, waits thy step on the road to thy home. But thy death cannot now profit the dead, the beloved, and thou hast had pity for him, who took but thine aid to design thy destruction. His life is lost, thine is saved. She spoke no more in the tongue that I could interpret. She spoke in the language unknown, a few murmured words to her swarthy attendants. 
Then the armed men, still weeping, rose and made a dumb sign to me to go with them. I understood by the sign that Aisha had told them to guard me on my way, but she gave no reply to my parting thanks. 11. I descended into the valley. The armed men followed. The path on that side of the watercourse, not reached by the flames, wound through meadows still green, or amidst groves still unscathed. As a turning in the way brought in front of my sight the place I had left behind, I beheld the black litter creeping down the descent, with its curtains closed, and the veiled woman walking by its side. But soon the funeral procession was lost to my eyes, and the thoughts that it roused were erased. The waves in man's brain are like those of the sea, rushing on, rushing over the wrecks of the vessels that rode on their surface, to sink after storm in their deeps. One thought cast forth into the future, now mastered all in the past. Was Lillian living still? Absorbed in the gloom of that thought, hurried on by the goad that my heart, in its tortured impatience, gave to my footstep, I outstripped the slow stride of the armed men, and midway between the place I had left and the home which I sped to, came far in advance of my guards into the thicket in which the bushmen had started up in my path on the night that Lillian had watched for my coming. The earth at my feet was rife with creeping plants and many-colored flowers. The sky overhead was half hid by motionless pines. Suddenly, whether crawling out from the herbage or dropping down from the trees, by my side stood the white-robed and skeleton form, Aisha's attendant, the strangler. I sprang from him, shuddering, then halted and faced him. The hideous creature crept toward me, cringing and fawning, making signs of humble goodwill and servile obeisance. Again I recoiled, wrathfully, loathingly turned my face homeward and fled on. I thought I had baffled his chase, when, just at the mouth of the thicket, he dropped from a bough in my path close behind me. Before I could turn, some dark muffling substance fell between my sight and the sun, and I felt a fierce strain at my throat. But the words of Aisha had warned me. With one rapid hand I seized the noose before it could tighten too closely. With the other I tore the bandage away from my eyes, and wheeling round on the dastardly foe, struck him down with one spurn of my foot. His hand, as he fell, relaxed its hold on the noose. I freed my throat from the knot and sprang from the copse into the broad sunlit plain. I saw no more of the armed men or the strangler. Panting and breathless, I paused at last before the fence, fragrant with blossoms, that divided my home from the solitude. The windows of Lillian's room were darkened. All within the house seemed still. Darkened and silenced home, with the light and sounds of the jocund day all around it. Was there yet hope in the universe for me? All to which I had trusted hope had broken down. The anchors I had forged for her hold in the beds of the ocean, her stay from the drifts of the storm, had snapped like the reeds which pierce the side that leans on the barb of their points and confides in the strength of their stems. No hope in the baffled resources of recognized knowledge. No hope in the daring adventures of mind into regions unknown. Vain alike the calm lore of the practiced physician and the magical arts of the fated enchanter. 
I had fled from the commonplace teachings of nature to explore in her shadowland marvels at variance with reason. Made brave by the grandeur of love, I had opposed without quailing the stride of the demon, and my hope, when fruition seemed nearest, had been trodden into dust by the hooves of the beast. And yet, all the while, I had scorned as a dream more wild than the world of a sorcerer, the hope that the old man and the child, the wise and the ignorant, took from their souls as inborn. Man and fiend had alike failed a mind, not ignoble, not skillless, not abjectly craven, alike failed a heart not feeble and selfish, not dead to the hero's devotion, willing to shed every drop of its blood for a something more dear than an animal's life for itself. What remained? What remained for man's hope? Man's mind and man's heart thus exhausting their all, with no other result but despair. What remained but the mystery of mysteries, so clear to the sunrise of childhood, the sunset of age, only dimmed by the clouds which collect round the noon of our manhood? Where yet was hope found? In the soul, in its everyday impulse to supplicate comfort and light from the giver of soul. Wherever the heart is afflicted, the mind is obscured. Then the words of Aisha rushed over me. What mourner can be consoled if the dead die forever? Through every pulse of my frame throbbed that dread question. All nature around seemed to murmur it, and suddenly, as by a flash from heaven, the grand truth in Faber's grand reasoning shone on me and lighted up all within and without. Man alone of all earthly creatures asks, Can the dead die forever? And the instinct that urges the question is God's answer to man. No instinct is given in vain. And born with the instinct of soul is the instinct that leads the soul from the seen to the unseen, from time to eternity, from the torrent that foams toward the ocean of death to the source of its stream far aloft from the ocean. Know thyself, said the Pythian of old, that precept descended from heaven. Know thyself? Is that maxim wise? If so, know thy soul. But never yet did man come to the thorough conviction of soul, but what he acknowledged the sovereign necessity of prayer. In my awe, in my rapture, all my thoughts seemed enlarged and illumined and exalted. I prayed. All my soul seemed one prayer. All my past, with its pride and presumption and folly, grew distinct as the form of a penitent, kneeling for pardon before setting forth on the pilgrimage vowed to a shrine. And, sure now, in the deeps of a soul first revealed to myself that the dead do not die forever, my human love soared beyond its brief trial of terror and sorrow. Daring not to ask from heaven's wisdom that Lillian, for my sake, might not yet pass away from the earth, I prayed that my soul might be fitted to bear with submission whatever my Maker might ordain. And if, surviving her, without whom no beam from yon material sun could ever warm into joy a morrow in human life, so to guide my steps that they might rejoin her at last, and in rejoining regain forever. How trivial now became the weird riddle! that a little while before had been clothed in so solemn an awe. What mattered it to the vast interests involved in the clear recognition of soul and hereafter, 
whether or not my bodily sense, for a moment, obscured the face of the nature I should one day behold as a spirit. Doubtless the sights and the sounds which had haunted the last gloomy night, the calm reason of Faber, would strip of their magical seemings. The eyes in the space and the foot in the circle might be those of no terrible demons, but of the wild's savage children whom I had seen, halting, curious and mute in the light of the morning. The tremor of the ground, if not as heretofore explicable by the illusory impression of my own treacherous senses, might be but the natural effect of elements struggling yet under a soil unmistakably charred by volcanoes. The luminous atoms dissolved in the cauldron might as little be fraught with a vital elixir as are the splendors of naphtha or phosphor. As it was, the weird rite had no magic result. The magician was not rent limb from limb by the fiends. By causes as natural as ever extinguished life's spark in the frail lamp of clay, he had died out of sight, under the black veil. What mattered henceforth to faith in its far grander questions and answers, whether reason in Faber or fancy in me, supplied the more probable guess at a hieroglyph which, if construed aright, was but a word of small mark in the mystical language of nature. If all the arts of enchantment recorded by fable were attested by facts which sages were forced to acknowledge, sages would sooner or later find some cause for such portents, not supernatural. But what sage, without cause supernatural, both without and within him, can guess at the wonders he views in the growth of a blade of grass, or the tints on an insect's wing. Whatever art man can achieve in his progress through time, man's reason in time can suffice to explain. But the wonders of God? These belong to the infinite, and these, O oh, immortal will, but develop new wonder on wonder. Thou thy sight be a spirit's, and thy leisure to track and to solve an eternity. As I raised my face from my clasped hands, my eyes fell full upon a form standing in the open doorway. There, where on the night in which Lillian's long struggle for reason and life had begun, the luminous shadow had been beheld in the doubtful light of a dying moon and a yet hazy dawn. There, on the threshold, gathering round her bright locks the aureole of the glorious sun, stood Amy, the blessed child, and as I gazed, drawing nearer and nearer to the silenced house, and that image of peace on its threshold, I felt that hope met me at the door, hope in the child's steadfast eyes, hope in the child's welcoming smile. "'I was at watch for you,' whispered Amy. "'All is well.' "'She lives still? She lives? Thank God! Thank God!' "'She lives. She will recover,' said another voice, as my head sunk on Faber's shoulder. For some hours in the night her sleep was disturbed, convulsed. I feared then the worst. Suddenly, just before the dawn, she called out aloud, still in sleep. "'The cold and dark shadow has passed away from me, and from Alan, passed away from us both forever.' And from that moment the fever left her. The breathing became soft. The pulse steady, and the color stole gradually back to her cheek. The crisis is past. Nature's benign disposer has permitted nature to restore your life's gentle partner, heart to heart, mind to mind. 
and soul to soul, I cried in my solemn joy. Above as below, soul to soul. Then, at a sign from Faber, the child took me by the hand and led me up the stairs into Lillian's room. Again those dear arms closed around me in wife-like and holy love, and those true lips kissed away my tears, even as now, at the distance of years from that happy morn, while I write the last words of this strange story, the same faithful arms close around me, the same tender lips kiss away my tears. End of section 7